Welcome back to Inside Asia. I'm your host, Steve Stein. Is global enthusiasm for China investment cooling? That's the question I pose in this week's episode. My guest is David Hoffman, Senior Vice President for the Conference Board in Asia and Managing Director of the China Center for Economics and Business. We got together on the back of an article David just posted, insisting that now was a critical moment for MNCs to step up their game, align their internal communications, and ensure that the rhetorical noise from on high doesn't detract from the real story on the ground. This isn't to say that doing business in China today doesn't come with some significant risk, but it does suggest that the reasons for staying, doubling down, or retreating require new levels of thoughtful consideration. Are overseas investors still bullish? Are foreign companies still welcome? Is a China strategy still essential? Over the course of the next 40 minutes, we explore these questions and more. But first, a quick word about our sponsor, Quilt AI, a mission-first technology company that helps large organizations use the internet more purposefully. It's looking to reverse fractures in society and generate empathy while helping organizations understand their consumers and beneficiaries much better. They give time and money to causes they care about and in service to people and planet. Inside Asia is pleased to be associated with Quilt AI. For more information, do check them out at quilt.ai. Now here's my conversation with David. David Hoffman, as always, a pleasure to spend time with you. Thanks for joining us on Inside Asia. It's great to be here, Steve. Yeah. We're going to talk about something you know a lot about, um, the U.S.-China or Western-China business environment. Um, I guess there's been a few indications recently that are concerned. One, uh, foreign direct investment is down, um, partly because due to COVID, but uh, there could be other underlying issues, which I think we'll uh, examine a bit. But then also, um, there seems to be a trend now where China is moving more towards an isolationist approach and disengaging to some degree. I guess I want to start with just first your thoughts on uh, reduced foreign investment in China. Where is that coming from? Why is it happening now? Yeah, well, that's a, there's a lot in that question. Um, the FDI numbers are indeed down. And um, as you and I have discussed, Rhodium Group put out some recent reporting on that that you know shows the figures are reduced. Um, this isn't surprising to me, um, you know, given all, you know, all things considered. Um, many foreign businesses in China are already at scale. So you might have say you might say that the 80s and 90s and even in the early 2000s that that was an investment boom. A lot of companies invested, scaled up, and it's only natural that as the market matures and so forth, they're going to invest less and they're going to harvest their investments more. Um, I think that's one explanation for this. Um, secondly, many large enterprises there have significant domestic businesses and capital resources onshore or access to onshore capital resources, they're not going to necessarily bring capital in from abroad. So that's that's another ex- explanation for this. And third, and, and, and finally, maybe to your point about isolation, I, I don't know if I would say that China is re-isolating, um, but there are signals in that direction. And for that reason, I think many foreign businesses are inclined to sort of take a more transactional approach to their China business development at this juncture and not really commit to long-term strategic investment. Um, 
So I think a confluence of all three of those are, are why we're seeing this reduced FDI. So, so take more of a cautionary note when you look at the numbers because it suggests it's more complex. There's underlying reserves. There's the opportunity to, if you will, begin flatten out after many, many years of investing. So therefore, um, don't build or make too much of those numbers. At the same time, there are lots of geopolitical issues and diplomatic challenges which are uh, giving uh, organizations pause for thought. How would you characterize those? How serious are they? Are they resolving themselves under a new administration, in the U.S. at least? Uh, could you just give us a walkthrough on that one? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the geopolitical considerations are, are significant. There's great uncertainty about what the future direction of U.S. policy is, of EU policy, and of China policy. At present, our our operating assumption is that hard sanctions won't be forthcoming that will that will you know force a stop to business in a broad-based way so we may see sanctions on individual companies or individuals and the companies and individuals involved will have to stop business but we don't see, for example, a sweeping ban on U.S. chip imports to China, although we might see Chinese retaliations against certain America, American or, or European chip makers. But we don't think there's going to be a broad-based sanction uh, policy f across all of these sides. And the reason being is that would, you know, that would induce too much harm to U.S. companies or Chinese firms, and then consequentially harmful impacts on their respective economies. So I guess I'm saying that we think pragmatism ultimately will win out, but that doesn't make these issues any less concerning. The business environment is becoming more complicated and more expensive, uh, and for this reason, um, Firms are finding it much harder and, and more expensive to do business there. With respect to U.S.-China relations, has anything changed with the turnover from the Trump to the Biden administration? And are there glimmers of hope or negotiations uh, back in play? Um, any hopeful signs on the horizon? Um, you know, the, uh, the Biden administration is busy studying many things. And I think they have been, you know, slow moving a little bit on China because it's so politicized in the U.S. now that anything they announced would just be received with so much scrutiny uh, on all sides from everybody on everything. So we think they're kind of trying to lay low there. Um, but what we're seeing, of course, is a very significant change in style. Um, and also approach. Again, we're a nonpartisan uh, research institution, think tank, and uh, you know we're not trying to make a judgment call here. But there are two things to realize. Um, firstly, the Trump administration believed that if they exerted hard power on China, sanctions, tariffs, so on and so forth, that China would 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 uh, see that strength and change. So that was the view. Uh, that was the strategy and um, uh, for what it's worth. The Biden administration embraces a strategy 
where they're not trying to change China. They're trying to change the U.S. and its allies, become more competitive. So that's a pretty significant change in strategic orientation. Um, and um, secondly, they've returned, I guess, what to what you might say, process and, and professionals. The China people they've layered into the National Security Committee and all of the agencies is really significant, both older gen people like me, um, you know, with Kurt Campbell as the head of the Indo-Pacific Directorate at the National Security Council, very experienced, and lots of young China people that are really exceptional. Um, and there's a very high degree of alignment across these people. They've worked together for years. They've worked with President Biden in many cases for years. I mean, Antony Blinken himself, like three decades with, with the president. And so that was what was symbolic, for example, in the, in the Alaska meeting in, in March. Uh, you know, Antony Blinken, the Secretary of State, Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor, met with their, their Chinese counterparts together. And that was actually symbolic because, you know, several administrations ago, um, the National Security Advisor and the Secretary of State at the time were famously divided by their Chinese uh, negotiators. So there's a very high degree of alignment. The U.S. government now is speaking, you know, on the same page, on the same line, I guess, if you will, towards China. That doesn't mean things will get better soon or that, and it's certainly true to say that the Biden administration is not going soft. Uh, but this return to professionals, to process, to dialogue, and that consistency across the White House and the agencies, I think matters a lot. Um, and it will probably ensure that things don't get worse. So symbolically, it bodes for a more pragmatic approach, uh, but nothing yet to be seen. And of course, under Trump, um, it was trade, which was the cornerstone issue, the thing that broke them apart, tariffs, everything that th flowed from it. Is there a concern under Biden and a Democratic administration that human rights, uh, for instance, what's happening in Xinjiang or Hong Kong or even Taiwan to some degree, will interfere with their ability to bridge the differences? Yeah, I mean, it's typically um, true to say that the, the Democratic Party probably elevates human rights issues more than the Republican Party, although maybe that's disputable today. What's important to note is that the trade war, if you will, with the Trump administration began in the White House. Um, it then extended into the national security apparatus with the China initiative that Jeff Sessions, the outgoing uh, attorney general, initiated in November 2018. And then it finally moved into Congress. And today in Congress, we have, gosh, I don't know, upwards of 500 different pieces of paper circulating. By contrast, after the 9-11 terrorist attacks and all of the concern on the Hill for anti-terrorism legislation, there were 150 bills circulating. That gives you an idea of the activity that is happening in, in Congress at this juncture. And there are many in Congress and in the Senate who favor a much stronger uh, human rights position, and we're seeing bills move move through that are that are uh, very assertive in that regard. And I guess what I'm saying here is that to some extent, it's a little bit out of the White House's hands at this juncture. I mean, sure, 
the president might veto things, but you know, in general, uh, there's a lot happening uh, on that issue at the in the Congress, and we expect some pretty hard-nosed legislation to come out very soon um, that will probably impose new sanctions that are related to hu these human rights issues. Uh, is China waiting, or, or, or is China's other trading partners waiting on the U.S. to sort out this problem before they move forward, initiate new in, any new endeavors with, with the Chinese government? Uh, or are they moving ahead unilaterally with their own decisions vis-a-vis -vis investment or trade or what might be at stake? I mean, I think Europe has actually moved the fastest on calling out the human rights challenges. And as you know, Europe and China had completed the negotiations on this comprehensive agreement on investment between the EU and China. Um, in parallel to that, <clears throat> they issued some sanctions against uh, four Chinese individuals and I think one firm. And China responded with retaliations that were very significant. Um, and again, maintain this line that human rights is an internal matter and shouldn't be a subject to, to trade discussions. I think that that bird has flown, you know, and Antony Blinken in that Alaska meeting tied the human rights issues to the economic and trade issues, I think, very eloquently. The first time I've ever heard a policy official do it, that it's all part of the same package. So I think we're seeing sort of a you know, a unified line on this from America and its allies. Um, and, uh, you know, to that extent, we expect that position to harden. The, the more difficult question to answer is how will China respond? Um, will it acquiesce to some of these demands or will it, will it uh, demur or reject them out of hand? And I think if, if that it happens, I think we actually may see, you know, uh, more of an isolationist sort of trajectory. Yeah. Well, diplomacy and politics aside, what is the business landscape in China today? How easy or difficult are the Chinese authorities making it to do business there? You know, the the rhetoric from the top is difficult to parse. Uh, I'd mentioned to you this new du dual circulation strategy that was announced at the National Party Congress last October and reiterated at the National People's Congress this March. And this dual circulation strategy is thus, basically, China wants to become more self-reliant, more dependent on its internal market, and more uh, independent in terms of supplying its internal market with its domestic supply base. Now, in theory, that includes foreigners that are active in producing goods and services in China as well as Chinese firms. Um, the external circulation part of this dual circulation strategy um, conceptualizes becoming less dependent on the global system and detaching where needed. And um, many foreign companies are having trouble reading this. They don't know what the party envisions as the future for multinational corporations in China. And many foreign businesses um, are therefore adopting a more transactional approach towards China. They're, they're doing business while they can based on the current platforms they've built, 
but they're pretty reluctant to commit to long-term strategic investment investment and this is why you're seeing uh, you know reduced FDI in, in that respect David what prompted this why this turning inward well I think um, China perceives rightly a more unfriendly if not hostile external environment so you know I think um, China China cares about two things really it cares about its domestic it cares mostly about its domestic political stability and to the extent that things threaten that it will clamp down or or regulate or manage uh, with an end to assuring political stability and to the extent they're seeing external pressure on human rights issues and economic uh, reciprocity issues and level playing field issues and fair trade issues they are sort of battening down the hatches to try to preserve their domestic political stability at the expense of more integration and accommodation with the West. Mm. That's basically, it's a, it's a conflict of systems. Right. It's an incompatibility of systems. And, um, you know, in, in my view, China will have to undertake some important reforms on its side to create the space for accommodation. And if it doesn't, this divide will only grow. And the, the, the question, therefore, is can Western business play both sides? You know, will this divide, this separation, be peaceful and amicable? Or will it be hostile and maybe even, you know, maybe even worse? That's the big question. Are there any indications at all that China is making it easier to do business in China? Or is it, uh, is it still um, skewed? Uh, towards, for instance, the larger, more highly capitalized businesses, the auto industry, the chip industry, uh, high-tech areas where they need and want to see that type of foreign investment. In other words, um, any policy decisions that have been taken in the last 18 to 24 months that send a signal to the multinational companies to say, we are open for business, we're encouraging, and we want you here. You know, the, the rhetoric, even from the top, is that the door remains open to business and that the Chinese welcome foreign investors. And the experience of many of our members, um, you know, some 50 global multinationals, European and American and Asian alike, are experiencing actually counterintuitively a very high degree of hospitality at the local government level. China's economy, even though the recovery data don't, don't admit this, is under a lot of stress. It's imbalanced. They've got 840 million people who are low income, if not poor, and low educated. They've got a lot of domestic issues to deal with, um, you know, uh, deleveraging their debt overhang and so on and so forth. And while there are some really fantastic companies in China, by and large, most of them are pretty retrograde. So foreign investors are really important. They are the providers of quality investment, quality employment, quality tax payment, um, quality CSR, and and so forth. And they often are instrumental in ecosystem modernization. 
And the local government officials really recognize this. And oddly enough, for foreign investors, the what determines their opportunity is the gap between contemporary realities and the aspirations of the plan at any given time. And the plan that China now aspires to is really a great leap from where it is now to where Xi Jinping and team want to go. And the role of foreign players in that um, is essential. And so it's precisely when gaps like that exist that the opportunities for foreign investors are highest. Now, let me give you an example of this conflict between policy and opportunity. So China would like the biopharma and medtech industries to localize more in China. Who, who doesn't? Um, on the one hand, there's, you know, the, the demand for pharmaceuticals in China is endless. We all know that. It's an aging population. It's a huge population. The healthcare needs are only going to rise. Many foreign companies would like to build out their businesses there for that reason. Um, and China is welcoming it and even incentivizing it on one hand. And on the other hand, they're driven by cost pressures to try to control the costs of the health care sector. So they're, they're, they're debating whether to introduce price controls in, in some areas they already have and also limit what we call term of patent tenure. So reducing the amount of time a patented drug is protected by patent. And, and you know, so on the one hand, for a foreign investor in pharmaceuticals, it looks great on the demand side. On the other hand, there are potential policy policies forthcoming that would absolutely destroy the margins of any future business. Yet that sounds like a healthy internal debate. And there are issues related to escalating yeah. healthcare costs. I mean, the U.S. is out of control. It's nearly twice the cost to, to, to be given or provided healthcare in the U.S. versus anywhere else in the world. China sees that, they recognize it, and they're wondering, by our sheer mass, might we be able to control it or at least have a designed growth versus, you know, unfettered growth in such a way where they can serve the population but also manage their, their health care costs? That, that does seem reasonable, does it not? Yeah, I, you know, I, I think you're right. Um, it's, uh, you know, many of the issues China faces with, with inequality, with health care costs, with you know, demographic change and so forth are issues that are faced elsewhere. China's kind of coming at it from a a more a, a large government uh, sort of um, position, whereas the U.S. is kind of coming at it from a small government right. position. And many in the U.S. think that the government should be bigger to assure uh, adequate health care to the entire population and. China's actually thinking, you know, we can do this, but by force of government, uh, you know, uh, fiat. And, you know, so it's coming at the same problem from two different angles. Fair enough. So, so you're raising a really interesting point, which speaks to the increased need to communicate what's going on in China back to headquarters. And you've recently written a paper to address some of these challenges, saying it's not 
um, sufficient to be able to just to speak in um, these high uh, high level terms about whether it's a good investment or bad investment or the right thing or the wrong thing to be in China. You have to do the analysis to understand both short term and medium term what's at stake. But you're also articulating and 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 advocating for the idea that companies more so than ever before need to take a long term view in China. Could you explain that a little more? Well, um, right now, the geopolitical tensions, the, the, the mass media attention to these tensions, to human rights issues, to, you know, COVID accountability, all of these things are taking a big toll on people, you know, people at headquarters, uh, people in China and customers and suppliers in China and at in home markets. And if you think about a big multinational in China, how is an average employee of a big US firm to feel? I mean, you know, divided loyalties are problematic. And we have seen a terrific breakdown in trust, not just between the US and China at a diplomatic level, but between but between China organizations and their headquarters. Um, And this has been exacerbated by COVID travel restrictions. So general managers don't spend time in China as they once used to, to build rapport with their Chinese colleagues and, 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 and learn the market by visiting customers and government. And, and also Chinese talent isn't rotating through talent mobility programs globally. So there's a, a divide in the understanding. And meanwhile, these China issues are really big and difficult to think about it. I do this all day long for my living and I, have many, many outstanding questions. So the average company has significant differences of opinion. And the only way to effectively address these challenges is, is, is to align on opinions. And, and that requires trust, but it requires a lot of disciplined engagement. So, so what you're saying is by virtue of this isolation, um, people are taking strong positions either for or against. So I would suspect then on the ground, as you described, at the local level, things are better than anyone back in headquarters might truly understand because of the rhetoric, because of the press. Is that what you're saying? Well, I think that the China organizations, by and large, feel that there are good investable opportunities good opportunities for growth and prosperity, that their presence in China actually helps with social issues and uh, human issues. I mean, foreign companies in China do a great deal of work in CSR and related activities and in general feel that their presence is actually helping improve U.S.-China, Sino-Western relations and that peaceful relations are paramount. So that's kind of a, I guess, a position most would have. Headquarters is probably increasingly concerned about the viability of China business, the policy directions, whether there are reputational risks that are too high. And these are valid concerns. And the China organizations really need to embrace more thorough risk management a more thorough 
calculation on the evaluation of business opportunities. So up until now, it's been the case where why wouldn't we invest in China? It's only going up. But, you know, in the pharmaceutical example I told you, those policy questions are, are huge, right? Um, and, and oftentimes, I would say China organizations feel like headquarters concerns are, are overreactive. Um, in reality, both sides have good points, and those points need to be brought together and hashed out through difficult conversations. Mm. For headquarters doesn't want to think, let the local organizations think they don't trust them. Local organizations typically don't want to talk about the risks and the policy uncertainties because they don't want to dampen headquarter enthusiasm for investing. They've got to get off out of that mode. They've got to come together and embrace the realities of risk and reward, and 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 agree uh, on a consensus basis that th these are navigable. So, so what's missing? Is is it the the analysis? Is it the um, the the ability, the training required in order to ask good questions and listen actively to the responses, um, to back away from preconceived ideas or stereotypes that may be prevailing. What would you advise as somebody who's in the midst of this day in day out? Yeah, it's really around communication disciplines uh, and making sure that the right the right conversations can happen and that they happen frequently. Um, and it is, some firms are doing this. If I take you back a little in time, when I was doing you know, work in my consulting era career long ago in the early 90s, um, companies were very divided on China. I spent time in many an executive committee meeting or a board meeting at headquarters where you'd have uh, one group of board members who thought China was the biggest opportunity to happen in a millennia and we needed to bet big. And in the same room, there were two or three others who said, you know, China's a communist country, we shouldn't go there to begin with. Mm -hmm. It was that divided. And, and, and the companies that succeeded in that early era were those that aligned effectively, where headquarters invested in China understanding and the China organization spent ample and adequate time explaining goings-on to foreigners, right? The, the, the headquarter people. And often expatriates would rotate both ways to assure that connection. And the companies that had a long view and a shared understanding did well, and those that didn't did less well. Some failed, but they just did less well. So alignment was identified as a key success factor. In some ways, we're back to that problem of the early 90s and or of the 90s um, for different reasons. But just like then, the two sides need to come together. And I remember it being very novel. It was like the IBM CEO at the time, John Ackers, who made the first visit. I mean, it was very common that global CEOs didn't actually visit China, certainly not boards. And, and, and in the 2000s and on, most major multinationals would have one of their quarterly or triannual board meetings in China. And there was a dedicated brain function at headquarters to sort of be abreast of China uh, developments and so on and so forth. And that has broken down. Could, could it be relative to other issues which are uh, combating multinationals that China is losing its position? 
that in other words, it's no longer seen as essential. The last five to 10 years, the whole rhetoric was, if you're not in China, you're not in business. Uh, now it seems to be shifting to, um, there are other concerns we have, sustainability, you know, environment, social governance issues are now raising their heads. The ESG world would say, you know, um, you have to report on these things. And maybe China isn't the best bet with respect to ESG. Does that come up? Is it something that you think is figuring in or is that just too early? No, I think it's beginning to factor in more and more, if not already a lot. Mm -hmm. And I think the position that most foreign companies would have operating in China is that by virtue of their presence there, they can improve ESG performance in China. And, and all of our members are certainly very advanced in their sustainability efforts there, and, and it's important. It's a, it's a, it's a change driver. Um, but you're right. On, on the other hand, there may be those who feel like because ESG performance is weak or deteriorating, especially on the social side with the issues you raised like Xinjiang and Hong Kong, we shouldn't be there at all. Um, there's a growing voice in that camp, and it's a very difficult decision um, to make. Um, you know, I, I, my own personal view is that companies play a very big role in conveying good values and good practices, and it's better that they be there and do what they can to help remedy them. I would see, see very few of them today actually contributing to it. So to your point, you know, the idea of going just to low-cost manufacturing and a lower um, environmental standards to produce more cheaply, that, that day is over, at least for China. I mean, some of that has moved to other emerging markets like South Asia, and it's not good. Um, but I think in China, it's more advanced than that. We're already at a different stage. You've, it, it, in many ways, it's kind of it's. There's this parallel dimension, David, that, that's coming to mind. Whereas I remember in the early days, post WTO investment in China, the idea, the whole, the whole uh, narrative there was, uh, it's good we can demonstrate what the, the the power and promise of capitalism by being on the ground, right? And and you know we'll show them that there's something better than communism. And 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 now I guess the same argument is being made that you know um, there are sustainable practices that are profitable as well. You could have both. And, you know, it's, it's our role and a responsibility to participate in that way. <laughs> well, the first story is played out. And now a lot of people are saying we gave away too much. Uh, we overinvested in some ways, you know, relinquished uh, control over IP, um, granted too many concessions during the WTO, um, gave China everything it wanted and got actually a lot less back. Could the same be true all over again? Or is the whole ESG mo movement a bit different by nature? Gosh, that's a that's a good question. Um, again, I think we're in a, a very different phase of development now, and companies need to be very mindful, as you and I have t discussed at length, uh, of their purpose and really staying true to that purpose. And I would say that characterizes large. Uh, Western companies in China, and in some ways they can actually contribute more by virtue of their purpose there because of all these problems. Um, you mentioned uh, China needs help and they can provide that help. Um, 
but you know to your point about sort of where washington sees it and and capitals i mean i think it's you know a lot of what drove china policy out of the u.s in the 80s was business interests and perhaps in retrospect business interests drove the relationship too much now it's swung the other way around entirely where 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 business is demonized for participating in china and that too is an extreme view and there needs to be a, a middle role and something i'm working on as a intellectual pursuit is is figuring out trying to figure out and articulate what the role of business interests should be in in foreign policy uh, businesses obviously can't be uh, compromising on national security issues or human rights issues or any of these things or environmental standards absolutely not but it also seems like there are many things they can do well and and, and that are useful and good by being there rather than to say China is treating the Uyghurs badly we should exit mm. and you know again it's a very difficult issue it's a really hard conversation for companies to have, you know, uh, you know, both internally and externally. I mean, how do you communicate to your employees about issues like this or your customers? It's super hard. I'm definitely not saying it's hard, but uh, you know, I think there's more benefit from having our companies be there and do good by being there than exiting because they, it's determined that it's not good to be there at all. Yeah, you know, it's it's really an interesting point because if you think on the ground, day to day, businesses have legitimacy and they have position, uh, have influence, um, whereas all of the you know political uh, wrangling that's going on actually clouds the problem versus ad adding clarity, you know, on a day to day level. So. If it if in in the absence of business and a business presence in China to advocate for these types of changes and uh, ESG protocols and whatnot, um, who else is there to do it? Well, I think um, you know the governments in in Europe and and in the U.S. should hold their companies to very high standards, and there's no question about that. Um, foreign business in China should do its utmost to do well by doing good um, and um, it should work hard you know in, you know before we can address these broader geopolitical and societal issues what an MNC can do is actually make sure that it is aligned uh, internally I mean if they can achieve harmony between their Chinese staff and colleagues on these tough issues and their headquarter staff and colleagues on these tough issues, if they can achieve that, uh, that's already a pretty good start. If there are models for sort of doing it internally first that can then be sort of projected outward, you know, that seems like a worthwhile course of action to me. Mm. It's already been hard enough to do business in China, and now it looks like it's going to get a lot harder, is what you're saying. Yeah, it's, uh, it's true to say that business there has never been easy, um, and it is going to get harder, but it's always interesting. Yeah. David, thank you so much. As always, super insightful. Um, let's stay across this one. That was my conversation with David Hoffman, 
Senior Vice President for the Conference Board Asia and Managing Director of the China Center for Economics and Business. There's little doubt that overseas sentiment vis-a-vis China has shifted. For a spell, it was the darling of the investor world. Whether the objective was to tap China as a low-cost manufacturing hub for export or hone in on the buying frenzy of a billion consumers through imports, China was hot. Now, well, not so much. Or perhaps it's best to say less so. The fundamentals that should make China an exciting market still hold true, and yet the optics obscure that fact. Too many uncertainties can have a compound effect. Layered geopolitical discord on top of human rights violations, regulatory opaqueness and domestic favoritism, and bit by bit the attractiveness of a place like China begins to fall away. Perhaps for companies deeply vested in China, the situation is less severe. But for those contemplating new market entry or phase two expansion, it's easier now to hit the pause button than at any time in the past 30 years. Foreign direct investment in China tailed off in 2020, falling to levels not seen since 2009. In the first half of the year, that can be largely attributed to the outbreak of COVID. But as the market recovered, then stabilized, the comeback that might have occurred didn't. The prevailing question is, will it? Has the recent pandemic and the direct and indirect associations of China with the virus taken the shine off the world's most promising economic star? There are a few things that might help. From the U.S., the Biden administration could re-engage with a pragmatic range of commercial and diplomatic gestures. If China reciprocates, it's game on. On the other hand, if the anti-China rhetoric continues to grow, legitimate or not, any attempt at reconciliation would most surely be cast by the political opposition as a sign of capitulation. Politics aside, MNCs have a few added challenges of their own. As David and I discussed, the ESG, Environment, Social, and Governance Spotlight, is on. No part of a publicly listed organization is safe from prying stakeholder eyes. One misstep in China could prove disastrous. Like what, you ask? Like further investment in China-based manufacturing when pressure is on to restore jobs in the U.S. or Europe? Or how about identification with a third-party supplier suspected of using forced labor? There are sustainability risks as well. Can MNCs know with certainty that their China operations and affiliates aren't violating some unspoken or unwritten environmental compliance? More diligence and better communication are insurance policies against these kinds of blind spots, says Hoffman. Companies with a long view and a shared understanding do better than organizations that default to hyperbole or surrender to geopolitical gaslighting. For anyone who's done it, doing business in China has never been easy. The only way to combat it is to go deeper and get smarter. Learn to better manage the risks and brave the hard conversations, says Hoffman. Failing that, there's always prayer and wishful thinking, or what some might call the long view. That's it for this week's episode. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, please share it with friends and colleagues. Every podcast is a new experiment. Each week, we'll work to introduce a new topic or trend that shows how corporate purpose, sustainability, and 21st century thinking are stacking up to guide Asia's future. As always, we thank you for listening.